quiet without me saying anything. I wasn't looking at anybody. It's never happened before. Huh? I, I don't know. It's neither. I mean, whatever. Just surprising. All right. So let's open our Bibles to the book of Genesis. We're going to finish up chapter 14 today, and then next Sunday we'll have a Christmas sermon. Okay? So next Sunday will be more Christmassy than today is going to be. But we're going to take this morning to finish up our story in chapter 14. Renee is going to come read to us verses 17 to 24. And just a quick, tiny recap. So you remember last week, five kings went to war against four kings. The four kings beat the five kings. They grabbed a hold of Lot, Abram's nephew, and took off, took him as a prisoner of war. Abram takes his 318 guys. They go to a night ambush, get Lot, slaughter the kings, and come back. And that's where our story picks up this morning. They're on their way back. Abram's on his way back with Lot, all of the women, all the kids, all the stuff, all the possessions. He's loaded, and he bumps into some kings, two of them specifically beginning in verse 17. And so Renee is going to come and read beginning in verse 17. Thank you. All right, Genesis 14, verses 17 through 24. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal, strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we uh, need your power and your presence in this room this morning because we are reading words that are unlike anything else in this universe. These are your words. We believe that they are divinely inspired from your hand. And so we want to be very uh, careful with how we handle this. And we also want to make sure that we're seeing the things in here that you want us to see so that we will um, know more about who you are and that we'll love you more and that we'll live, we will live our lives more in line in the way that you want us to so that we can live the way you created us to live. And so, Spirit, come and do that, I pray. Show us things about yourself that we don't already know and refresh our hearts with renewed faith in the things we already believe. And so, come, Spirit. I believe you can speak to each one of us. 
uniquely, individually, where we are at, at this specific moment in life, in our journey. And so would you do that? Do what only you can do, and that is meet each person here. That when we exit this room in just a little bit, we will be able to say with confidence that we met with the living God, that God Most High was in the house, and that we interacted with him, and he spoke to us, and that we would uh, leave different as a result. And so, Spirit, please come and do that, I ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I know this has ever happened to you before, but this past week I got to hang out and spend time with someone that I actually met like 10, maybe 12 years ago, had some interactions with this person, learned something about them. Um, but then this week I got to spend a bunch of time uh, with them. And the encouraging part about spending the time with this individual was how much they helped me to understand Jesus, just their own story and how God used them and how it impacted me. And it encouraged me so much that I thought I would this morning take the opportunity to introduce you to him so you can get to know him, so you can be encouraged by him as much as I was. So this morning I introduce you to a man named Melchizedek, or Mel for short, but we probably won't call him Mel this morning at all. Melchizedek. Now I have to warn you ahead of time, you know, typically we go through books of the Bible and we do it for the very reason that it forces us to have conversations and to see things that we wouldn't otherwise, right? Because if I just went ahead and picked my favorite passages, you would get tired of hearing me pick my favorite passages. But by going through books of the Bible, it helps us to learn everything God wants to see about him. And sometimes it means you've got to wade through some deep waters. So this morning is going to be wading through some deep waters. This is, this is just a lot of material, a lot of stuff to understand if we're going to get our minds around Melchizedek and the role that he's supposed to play in our lives. So I apologize ahead of time, thinking caps on this morning, because this is going to be a lot of thought going into what we have to look at this morning. So we've got these few verses, particularly verses 18, 19, and 20, that introduce some guy named Melchizedek. What I want to do is I want to put some flesh and bone on him and on this encounter that he has with Abram. So just from these verses, what do we know about Melchizedek? Somebody tell me something that you can learn about this guy just from these couple of verses. All right, he's a king. He's a king of where? Salem. Salem. And he's also a priest. Is that it? Okay, he blesses Abram. Good. Well, let's dip down into some of these a little bit, okay? So here we go. We, we know his name, which is significant, because his name literally means king of righteousness, or king who brings about righteousness. So he is a king who does righteous things. You guys already said that he is the king of Salem. The word Salem is actually the word for shalom, or peace. So he's not only the king of righteousness, he's also the king of peace, and many believe that the town that he's the king of, Shalom, will one day become Jerusalem. So he's actually probably the first king of Jerusalem before it actually becomes Jerusalem, if you will. You guys have already said that he's a king and he is a priest. Uh, what makes this significant is that he's the first priest. We don't know anything about priests. We haven't heard about priests before. And all of a sudden we're getting introduced to this guy who is a priest. And he is also, like we said, he is a king. But there's some other things about him that are, are unique as you read the story. One is it, it's pretty clear that Melchizedek outranks Abram. 
as far as significance go or importance, Melchizedek is more important or more significant than Abram. Now, I want you to, I'm going to explain why I see that in a minute, but I want you to enter the story with me just for a moment. When this encounter happens, think about Abram and what Abram just did. Abram, in his 70s, just took 318 guys. He went and battled four kings. He slaughtered them all, gathered all of their stuff, plus he gathers uh, Lot and all of his family and all of his stuff, and he is now headed back to this valley when he bumps into Melchizedek. And I can almost see him. How, how puffed up would your chest be if you just did all of that in your 70s? I mean, I, I, all I can picture is those Vikings with the turkey leg and the beer. Like, oh, yeah, we just, oh, 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 yeah, we did it. Like, that's what I picture them. Like, Abram is the top dog. I mean, isn't he? I mean, he's the man. And now he comes, this king, because he was a king of his own little people group, warrior, and he bumps into the king of peace, Melchizedek. And so I'm expecting the top dog in this conversation to be Abram. I mean, he has a little more stories to tell than the king of peace, don't you think? But that's not really how it goes down. See, I doubt these verses contain their entire conversation. I think when he says that he brings out bread and wine, it's basically he's saying is he threw a party so we could hear each other's stories. And at some point, they figured out that they both believed in the same God. They both believed in the God most high. Have you ever had that kind of meeting with someone? You, you, know, you meet him for the first time, you start hanging out, and next thing you know, you're like, yeah, I think he's probably a Christian. I think he loves Jesus too. And then you find they are. It's like you hit it off in a whole different way because of that. I think that happened in this conversation at some point. They both realized, wait, we're talking about the same one God. We're both monotheists here, and we're talking about the same God most high. We're both talking about this guy, Yahweh, together. And so I bet they realized that, and that that just increased their ability in my mind even to see themselves as peers, if you will. But they don't. And that's really a little bit shocking in the story. So the reason I say that Melchizedek outranks or is more important or significant than Abram is because look at who blesses who, right? Melchizedek blesses Abram. And the greater always blesses the lesser, right? Sons don't bless fathers. Fathers bless sons. Kings bless subjects. The subjects don't bless the king. The greater person blesses the lesser person. So greater Melchizedek is blessing Abram, who is the lesser in this case. Also notice who tithes to who. Abram gives a tithe to Melchizedek. The lesser always tithes to the greater. Look who brings out the refreshments and hosts the party. It's Melchizedek. He's the one who is the host for Abram and blessing Abram. Now, why is all of this so important? Why is it important? Well, it's important because Abram, as far as the Jews would go or the Hebrews would go, he is the patriarch of patriarchs. I mean, he is the man. He is the father of the fathers. He's the one who's going to be, a great nation's going to come out of him. He's the one who's going to get the land. God said, if people bless you, they're blessed. If they curse you, look out. It's through his lineages and offspring that all the nations are going to be blessed. No one outranks Abram in importance or significance. No one is worthy of higher honor. Yet for some reason, Melchizedek rises to a greater spot than Abram. So these are things we see in the text. But there's actually something missing in the text, in the story, that speaks louder than the things that are said in the text. 
So let's think for a moment about what could be missing from this story. So the problem we have is we study the first 13 chapters, well, 11 chapters of Genesis, and then we took how many months of a break? And now we're coming back to Genesis. So you may have lost track of some of the things that have happened in those first 11 chapters. But if we started reading in chapter 1 and we get all the way through to this point, you would notice what's missing. You would immediately notice what is missing. It's probably sections of Scripture that you would skip over in your Bible reading plan. The genealogies. Do you guys remember when I said we started Genesis that there were these markers throughout the book of Genesis that gave it a skeleton, a thread that went through it, and it was the phrase, these are the generations of. So we've already seen in just the first 11 chapters this. Chapter 2, verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Chapter 5, verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. I mean, that's like the title of the whole book of Genesis. These are the books of the generation of Adam. In 6, 9, these are the generations of Noah. 10, 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. 10, 32, these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to his genealogies. 11, 10, these are the generations of Shem. 11, 27, now these are the generations of Terah. Family lineage is important. It is of uttermost importance in the book of Genesis. Everybody who's anybody is related to somebody. But not Melchizedek. There's nothing about his mother or his father. He just pops on the scene. He gets three verses. He's obviously more significant than Abram. And then he disappears. We don't know where he comes from. We don't know where he goes. We don't know where he was born. We don't know about his death. We know nothing else. He just shows up and he leaves so I think what speaks loudest is really what's missing in light of the context in the book of Genesis. Now, for hundreds of years, people would have read the book of Genesis, and they would have gotten to these verses on Melchizedek, and they would have scratched their head over this mystery man. Who is he? Where does he come from? How does he rank above Abram? This is startling, I guess you could say, to the reader because everything about their faith is anchored in Abraham. It would almost be like this. It would be as if you were reading through your Bible and you got to a place where Jesus met someone and through their interactions you realized, oh, this person outranks Jesus. That's how shocking this would have been for them to see somebody outranking Abraham? Nobody outranks Abraham, let alone some guy that we don't even know anything about who came from nowhere and went to nowhere. We know zilch about him. So this would have been that shocking to them when they got to this story. In fact, it's so shocking that many Christians have thought maybe that Melchizedek is actually a, a manifestation of Jesus before he came in Bethlehem. That this is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. Because there are those in the Old Testament. When you read the angel of the Lord. And then you hear the angel of the Lord speaking. And you also hear Yahweh speaking. And the two seem to be mixed up. The voices. Because the author wants you to know that there's something unique about this angel of the Lord. But that's not the case here. Melchizedek just, Melchizedek just talks. There's no mention of Yahweh. And then he vanishes off the scene. He's gone in three verses. So what is happening here? <laughs> well, the reason we're taking the time to explore Melchizedek is because this is not the only time he's mentioned in the Bible, in redemptive history. 
He's mentioned again. You're going to have to turn there with me to Psalm 110. So we need to look at Psalm 110 this morning. Psalm 110. Before I jump into reading it, I want you to notice what it says. You've got your 110 in your Bible. And then next to that, it says a psalm of... Okay. And then above that, does your Bible say something? Okay. So what you need to know is a little phrase, sit at my right hand, is not inspired by God. In the Hebrew Old Testament texts, as old back as you go, they're not there. But a psalm of David is there. Okay. Some argue that that was added later, and so it's not true. It's not truthful. You can't believe it. So I'm going to tell you this, because it's very significant that David wrote this. You need to know that David did write it, because Jesus says in Matthew 22 that Jesus wrote it, and that David wrote it. Okay? So you, we're going to bank on this for a moment, because it's very significant to how we understand Melchizedek, to know that David is the one who wrote this psalm. And I'll explain why in a second. So let's, let's look at the psalm. Here's what it says. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord is sworn... And will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I'm not going to read the rest of it because we don't have time this morning. So here's how this went down. I think David was reading through his Bible in the year plan. And he got to Genesis 14. And he went, hmm, what's up with this dude Melchizedek? And I believe he began to ask the same questions that we've asked this morning. I believe he made the same observations about Genesis 14 that we made. Now, I know how you feel about that. That's pretty cool to me to think that this morning we are reading the exact same verses that King David read thousands of years ago. I mean, that's pretty cool. God has preserved his word that long so that we have the same manuscripts that he had and we can read them just like he did. So I think he's reading it, asking the same questions. Who's this guy? Where does he come from? How come he's greater than Abraham? I mean, come on, nobody's greater than Abraham. And then under the inspiration of the Spirit, he writes this psalm. Now there's times in Scripture where someone writes something because God just says, are you ready? And they go, yes. And he tells them and they write. Like Genesis 1 and 2 was that way. God told Moses what to write. When Daniel has visions, he's writing stuff down that God directly gives to him. Other times men are, are writing out of their experience. There's other Psalms David writes that are out of his experience. This one is kind of a little bit of a blend of both, I think. I think David knows a little bit of what he's writing, but I also think he's confused as he's writing. I think he sees in part and he knows something's up, but he doesn't know exactly what it is. And so let's see what it is that he's seeing and why he takes Melchizedek from chapter 14 of Genesis and now writes a psalm about him and where that goes. So here's how his psalm begins. Lord, help me to communicate this clearly. <laughs> this, gets, this can get complicated because look how it begins. The Lord says to my Lord. So this is David speaking. And he's saying, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, says to my Lord, capital L, lowercase O, lowercase R, lowercase D. 
So we've got to figure out who are these lords that he's talking to. So if it's David, which we think it is, he's saying, Yahweh, my God, says to my Lord. Who, who, who is the other Lord then? Does he have two gods now? See, if it was someone else who wrote the psalm, like Asaph or someone, it could have been someone in David's kingdom. And therefore, we'd read it as if this subject of David says, the Lord Yahweh says to my Lord, little O, little R, little D, meaning David, right? King David. But that's not the case. So the head scratching goes on with who is this other Lord that Yahweh is speaking about or to in this psalm. And so we got to figure that out. And so let's keep reading. So it says this. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Okay, so what we learn about this Lord, capital L, small o, small r, small d, is that he is going to hold a scepter. Who holds a scepter? Kings hold scepters. And then he says, you're going to rule in the midst of your enemies. So whoever this capital L, little o, little r, little d is, he's a king holding a scepter. So now as we read the rest of this, I told you there's going to be a lot of brain thinking this morning. All of the yous and yours are talking about this Lord who's the king, who's holding the scepter. Okay, so back to verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. You, capital L, little O, little R, little D, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he's a king, this capital L, little O, little R, little D. And he's also what? A priest. Who else was a king and a priest? Melchizedek. So he's after the order. He's following a pattern of Melchizedek by this Lord being a king and being a priest. Got your brain around it? I don't think David fully understands what he's writing, but this raises some serious problems for David. First of all, he's a forever priest. Nobody lives forever. So how is this priest king, Lord, going to be living forever? Problem number one. Second, he's a priest and he's a king. And third, he's in the order of Melchizedek. Let me explain. He's a priest and a king. If you're King David, you know that a thousand years earlier, God gave Moses the law. And in the law it said, a priest can never be a king and a king can never be a priest because too much power would be in one person. So we're going to divide that. It's also very clear that kings come from the line of Judah. Priests come from the line of Levi. That's just how it's supposed to be. So if you're David and you read this, if you're David and you're writing this inspired by God, you realize I'm creating trouble here. I'm, 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 I'm actually writing stuff that's heresy, you could say. And then I'm going against what Moses said I was supposed to do when it comes to priests and when it comes to kings. And this guy is in the order of Melchizedek. I don't even know who he is. He's not in the line of Levi. 
So David, I'm sure, is going, okay, something's going on here that's beyond what I understand. It sure sounds heretical, but it's from God. And so he records this for us. And it's funny that it's even a a swearing oath by God that this is how it's going to be, and I will not change my mind. So this is pretty important. Like, if, if this is your faith and you get to this, you realize that, okay, now you've messed with my law, you've messed with my Moses, you've messed with my Abraham, my Judah, my Levi, my priest, you've messed with it all. Even though it's just one little verse. But it doesn't end there, does it? We've got to go to Hebrews. So let's go to Hebrews. And you thought it was confusing before? It's getting worse. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5. I'm going to read sections to us and then try to make comments to help move us through these verses in a way that we get our brains around. Okay? So here we go. Hebrews 5. I'm going to start in verse 1 because this is where the whole priest thing starts. I'm going to read swiftly and slow when I get to the stuff that we're going to camp on for minutes. So Hebrews 5 says this. For every high priest... Chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of other people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So all I did is just tell you, what does a priest do? Offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, and today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We know that other place. Where is it? Psalm 110. Good. There's the other place. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, verse 11. About this, what's the this? Stuff about the order of Melchizedek. I have much to say, we have much to say, and it is... So, forget it. (laughs) Just go home. That's what I thought when I got to that. I was just like, if he couldn't explain it, then what the heck are we going to do? And then he adds to that, and it's not only hard to explain, but you're all dull of hearing. (laughs) So dull of hearing that he actually abandons the Melchizedek topic, and he talks about how dull their hearing is, and then he doesn't come back to Melchizedek until chapter 6, starting in verse 19. So I'm not going to address our dull of hearingness. Instead, I'm just going to jump right into what's hard to explain, somehow thinking I'm going to explain it. (laughs) So here we go. Chapter 
6, verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, now we're going to pause for a second because we're going to jump into chapter 7. The book of Hebrews is a collection of sermons. If you read through it, you're going to see a big chunk of Old Testament quoted, and then the author preaches from it. He teaches from it. He applies it. So Hebrews is review and apply. He reviews something from the Old Testament, and then he applies it. He reviews something in the Old Testament, he retells the Old Testament story, and then he teaches something about it. That's all it is. That's exactly how this chapter 7 is broken down. He's going to retell the story in the first 10 verses. You're going to go, oh, yeah, there's a story from Genesis. And then, in, in, starting in verse 11, he's going to teach it. He's going to explain it, and then he's going to apply it. So this is just a sermon now within a sermon. Does that make sense? So 7, 1 through 10. You ready? This is just a recap. He's just recapping the story for us. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So there's why I don't think this is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus, because he's resembling Jesus. Does that make sense? That's why I'm pretty confident that wasn't Jesus showing up in the form of a Melchizedek. Verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abram... I love the way he words this. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, make sure we put that in there, gave a tenth of the spoils... And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descendants of Abraham. So you get what's happening there? I know this is confusing. All he's saying is Levi and all the, pri- all the priests would take tithes from the people. That makes sense? Let's just put it in short form. Where was I? Thank you. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descendant from them, receives tithes from Abraham and, is bl- and blessed him who had the promises. I mean, it's, it's kind of like sarcasm a little bit. Like, this is reverse order, everybody. Do you see that? Like, this is not how it was supposed to go down. It is, verse 7, beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. Get it? So he's just making the argument, honestly, in short, Melchizedek 
is superior to Abraham. Even when it comes to Levi, because he tithed through Abraham when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. All he's doing is making us see the ranking. Who's, who's number one? Who's more important? All right? Now, verse 11. Now comes the hard part. Because <laughs> now he's going to teach it to us. Now he's going to say, basically this is the, so what difference does this make? And then when he gets to the last part, it's now what difference does that make to you right now, personally, at this moment, because of this? But first we've got to understand what's even being said. So verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron, which is also the order of Levi? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right, let's go back to verse 11. Does everybody need to stand up? If you need to, I will not be offended. That's going to help you. Okay, verse 11. I want to read it without the parentheses. Let me hold the parentheses for a moment. Now, if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one after the order of Aaron? What's the answer to the question? It cannot be obtained. You can't be perfect by obeying the law. You can't be perfect by being good enough. All right, now the parentheses. Let me read it. Now, if perfection, back to verse 11, had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it, under the Levitical priesthood, the people received the law. Now, just pause for a moment. All he's trying to tell you there to make sure you get is the law and the priesthood are linked. You can't have one without the other. They are tied together. The law would not exist without the priesthood. They, they go hand in hand. And let me see if I can explain how. If I were to say to all of us this morning, I want you to go, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's the law. Go do it. You come back in 15 minutes and say, I broke the law. I didn't do it. And I'd say, that's okay, because I've got a priesthood set up to take care of your problem. See, the priesthood and the law have to go together. The law comes out to condemn you, and then the priesthood comes out so sacrifices for sin can be made to atone for you. So the two go hand in hand, and the very law itself has tons to say about the priesthood. 
I mean, you read the Old Testament. It's chapter after chapter about what the priest wears, where he goes, what he does, when he does it. There's as much in the Old Testament. You go to uh, right after the Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. It's all about priests and what they do. And so he's just hammering this point home that they are linked together. They flow out of one another, which is what makes verse 12 insane. Verse 12 needs to be bolded, highlighted, circled in your Bible. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Jesus is changing the priesthood. He's a priest and a king. And he's from the order of Melchizedek. If you're changing the priesthood, then what else changes? The law changes. Now, this can mean very little to us because we don't enter the world of the Old Testament well enough. You're going to change the law? God's law? What God told us to be doing for thousands of years? And now you're going to change it because this guy Jesus is connected to Melchizedek and he wants to be a king and a priest? Yeah. Jesus coming changes everything about the priesthood and as a result, it changes everything about the law and how men get right with God. See, this verse here really alone helps us even to understand how to read our Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is a, is, is a case of law and priests and law and priests and law and priests. And then we get this funneling effect until we get to Christ and we realize why he's, he's changed them both. Because when you change one, you have to change the other. So if the entire law is based on the priesthood, changing the priesthood is massive. It is a big, big deal. Because it's everything that the Jews believed for their entire lives, for their history, linked all the way back lineage to Abraham. And so what he does next is he tells us in verse 13 how exactly the priesthood has changed. So let's just look at verse 13. How has the priesthood changed? For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has served at the altar. So Melchizedek is the tribe that Jesus is from, and Melchizedek's tribe has never served at the altar in Jerusalem as a priest. Verse 14, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. That's good. Check, plus, he can be a king. And in connection with that tribe, Moses says nothing about priests. <laughs> but... This becomes more evident, verse 15, when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. So he's not just in the line of Judah, but now he's in the line of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent, concerning lineage, being in the line of Levi, but by the power of of an indestructible life by the power of his resurrection. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that's how it's changed. We've got a high priest now 
who is not in the line of Levi. So then we turn the corner into verses 18 to the end, which are his application section. The so what. But there's a few things we've got to notice before we get to the so what's. I want you to just notice these two things briefly because this, all help, this also, I think, helps us read our Bibles and helps us read our Old Testament. There are two things missing, or at least one thing clearly missing from the story as the author of Hebrews retells it. Do you notice there's no mention of the bread and the wine? Now, I don't know how much thought you've given to this in the past week or two, but if I'm reading the story of Melchizedek, I'm going to grab a hold of the bread and the wine and I'm going to say, Lord's Supper! It's, it's, a, it's a foreshadowing of that. But for some reason, the author of Hebrews doesn't go there. The author of Hebrews is going to talk in this book about Sabbath rest. He's going to talk about all these other Old Testament things. And he completely leaves that out. Which makes me think it must not have been a foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper. So we're going to let the New Testament, in this case, interpret our Old Testament. right? The other thing that he doesn't bring up, which I've heard pastors do, and that's why I'm bringing it up, is, oh, do you see how, how you need to tithe, people? You should all tithe. Look at the example of Abraham. The author of Hebrews doesn't go there, does he? At all. And so if somebody tries to use this to tell you to tithe, you tell them, hey, no, no way. <laughs> Ain't going to do it. Because that's not where he goes. He doesn't use the example that way. So there's things to learn about how he interprets his Old Testament that we can learn then how to apply to how we understand our Old Testament. There's other things we learn about this, and that is the beautiful thread of redemptive history in your Bibles. I know when we get in the Old Testament, sometimes our heads just start to go drift off into space because the Old Testament can be hard to get our brains around. But you notice just in this one story how in Genesis 14, it's almost like the story starts as this little bud of a flower, just a little bud. And then you get to Psalm 110, and it just starts to open the flower a little bit. Like, oh, there's something going on here that's greater than just what we saw in Genesis 14. And then you get to what Jesus says in Matthew 22, and the flower opens a little more. And then you get to what the author of Hebrews says, and you can actually see the petals, and you can smell the aroma of the flower as it opens up. I mean, that's just the way that God loves to tease things out in Scripture for us, over through redemptive history, revealing himself just a little bit more and a little bit more as the story unfolds. You guys know there's some stories you go to see, right? You want them to unfold slowly. I remember when I fought, saw the very first Lord of the Rings movie. If I'm getting this wrong, just tell me I got it wrong. I don't like those movies. I went to the movie theater. If I think I'm in the right place, I'm sitting there. I'm with my kids. The movie ends. The first one. I think it was the first one. I turn to my door and I go, he didn't get the ring to that little eye thing. She's like, that's not for like four more movies. I was like, what's the point of that? I'm not going to sit through four more movies. Just go to the last one and have them do it and get it over with. I know that I am not the normal person in this conversation right now that we're having. I know that most of you love it and that's the beauty of it. And you're more right than I am because that's how God does it. That's the story. It slowly unfolds from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. And with each step along the way, Jesus becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. Our need for a Savior becomes more obvious and more obvious and more obvious. And the reality that everyone else fails at being that Savior becomes more obvious and more obvious and more obvious until you get to Christ and you realize he's the only one. He's the only one that can be the priest and the king. And that's what he's going to tell us really next in this story. So 
Verse 18, this is like a benediction to us this morning. I'm going to sort of read this as our, more as a devotional, more as a drink this into your soul as I read this to you. Because this is the application of it. Because Jesus is the high priest and the king in the order of Melchizedek, this is what we know about him. Verse 18, Hebrews 7. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. For thousands of years, no man could draw near to God because obedience could never get you into the presence of God. You will never be good enough. But now, a better way is introduced so you can draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Jesus is a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds this priesthood permanently because he continues forever, forever and ever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. I'll just stop for a second. This, this idea of having a high priest is a little foreign to us at times. But if you do not have someone stand between you and God, you are dead. You're dead. You need a priest to stand between you and God and offer a blood sacrifice or you will never be forgiven. You will never enter heaven. You will be condemned forever. And Jesus here has now replaced all these high priests that would have slaughtered animal after animal after animal, even though it never could have really forgiven sins. It just covered them up. And now Jesus comes, and now he is not only the high priest, but he's also the blood sacrifice that is offered on your behalf. And so now he is able to save you to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession for you. That means you have a high priest who stands in heaven right now and makes intercession for you. He pleads his blood. His blood stands between you and the Father and it declares you forgiven. His righteousness declares you clothed. Because he's making intercession for you. So when the enemy goes to God and says, did you see what Matt did today? Jesus goes, got it covered. And the father looks down and goes, I see Matt clothed in righteousness. And he does the same for you over and over and over again. His one blood sacrifice is enough to cover, forgive, and cleanse you of all of your sins and all all of our sins, and according to the text, everyone who draws near to God through him. So may we draw near to God 
through Jesus as he makes intercession for us. Verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. I know life is full of changes. Things are always changing. You need to understand that Jesus isn't changing. He is your perfect, permanent, forever high priest bridging the gap between you and your sinfulness and the Father in heaven who demands perfection. Took us a long time to get there, didn't it? From Genesis 14. But I hope you see just the beauty and the majesty of God to create a story like this rather than just drop us into Hebrews. No, it took thousands of years for God to slowly unfold who he was, his plan, the requirement for blood sacrifices, all of the nitty-gritty details of what a high priest was and where he came from and what he did. The law for hundreds of years, people realizing we'll never live up to it, can't do it. How am I ever going to be forgiven? So that our hearts would be aching at Christmas time when Jesus shows up on the scene, thinking, could this be the Savior? Could this actually be the one who can get my sins forgiven as opposed to just cover it up? Could he be the one who's going to crush the serpent's head? Could he be the, the promised one? Could he be this one that's in the order of Melchizedek, whoever he was? So that when he does come on the scene, our eyes would be open and we would have seen him for who he really is. And of course, we know that when he showed up, nobody saw it. And it wasn't until after the spirit was poured out and here we are today, celebrating that Jesus is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, which is linked all the way back through David to Abraham in Genesis 14. I think that's pretty cool. We're, we're part of something a little bit bigger than just us in this room. And it's going to go on forever and ever and ever and ever because Jesus will be our high priest forever and ever and ever and ever. So I encourage you this morning, draw near to God through Jesus, your high priest. And if you've never drawn near to God through Jesus, your high priest, draw near to God today through Jesus, your high priest. And if you need more discussion about that and want to know what it means to draw near to God through Jesus, your high priest, talk to whoever you came with this morning, come find me afterwards, and we'd love to share more of that with you. Whew. We did it in 49 minutes. I hope that was helpful. We're going to sing one song or two. I don't know. One song. Whatever. You guys decide. Let's stand together and let's sing.